Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. My goal for today is to clarify questions you may have regarding routine cardiac testing that is used or ordered daily to help evaluate and treat patients with cardiac symptoms. We will start with some basic, non-invasive testing and then move on to more invasive procedures that give definitive answers. A coronary calcium scan, or sometimes often referred to as a CT calcium score, is a quick, convenient, and non-invasive evaluation which allows for the quantification of the amount of calcified hard plaque in your coronary arteries, which are arteries that supply blood to your heart muscle. This test is often utilized for patients who have no known cardiovascular disease, but may have risk factors for developing coronary artery disease, such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and or a strong family history of premature coronary artery disease. Insurances do not often cover this test, but some organizations will offer this screening at a very affordable cost for the patient. The level of calcium observed equates to the extent of plaque buildup in your arteries and determines your risk for a cardiovascular event within the next five years. The scoring looks like this. Coronary calcium score of zero indicates no identified risk, meaning the findings are consistent with a very low risk of having a cardiovascular event in the next five years. Calcium score of 1 to 10 indicates a minimal risk, meaning you have minimal atherosclerosis or plaque buildup of the arteries and still groups you in a low risk of having cardiovascular event in the next five years. Coronary calcium score of 11 to 100 indicates a mild risk and a mild coronary atherosclerosis is present, indicating you have a mild or minimal coronary stenosis or blockage, yet still putting you at a mild risk of having coronary artery disease. A coronary calcium score of 101 to 400 is a moderate risk, indicating the CT images show moderate calcium is detected in the coronary arteries and confirms the presence of atherosclerotic plaque. This puts the patient at moderate risk of having cardiovascular event. Greater than 400 calcium score puts the patient in high risk and is consistent with having a significant risk of having cardiovascular event within the next five years. Depending on the results of the coronary calcium scan and the risk level the patient falls into, and with other considerations such as symptoms, the patient may be re- referred for further testing such as stress testing or more invasive diagnostic testing. Patients may also be started on daily low-dose aspirin as well as statin therapy. EKGs were discussed in depth in the dysrhythmia podcast a few weeks back, but to review, a 12-lead electrocardiogram or also called an ECG or EKG, is a non-invasive way to record the electrical signals in your heart. The 12-lead EKG provides spatial information about the heart's electrical activity in three directions, including right to left, superior to inferior, meaning top to bottom, and anterior to posterior, which means front to back. EKGs can detect electrical activity, which help identify arrhythmias, 
cardiac ischemia, or electrolyte imbalances. If and when an abnormal EKG is observed, depending on the abnormality, further testing will be indicated to look for an identifiable cause to abnormal changes in the EKG. Reasons to conduct an EKG would be chest discomfort or pain, dizziness, lightheadedness, or confusion, complaints of heart palpitations, rapid pulse, shortness of breath, or even weakness and fatigue can all be reasons to obtain a 12-lead EKG. EKGs are also routinely done for cardiac clearance if a patient is scheduled to undergo surgery. If the patient has symptoms but an EKG is normal, it may be required that the patient have continuous EKG monitoring. Continuous EKG monitoring can be performed in multiple ways. To start, a Holter monitor is a small but wearable device that reports continuous EKG readings and is usually worn for 24 to 48 hours. An event monitor is a portable device similar to a Holter monitor but records at certain times. For instance, when the patient is feeling symptomatic, it can be triggered to record EKG tracings and is typically worn for 30 days. If the patient is asymptomatic during 30 days and the event monitor is unremarkable, yet the patient still has proxismal symptoms or symptoms that come and go that were not captured on the event monitor, a long-term implantable monitor, such as an implantable cardiac monitor, loop recorder, or a link device may be implanted, which allows for long-term heart rhythm monitoring. These types of long-term heart rhythm monitoring do consist of a minor surgical procedure to implant the recorder just under the skin of the chest. Example of patients that may require such long-term monitoring include those who have had previous stroke but no documented atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, and also patients that have fainting spells to determine if they are caused by arrhythmias, significant bradycardia, or cardiac pauses. The appropriate transition at this point is to move into stress testing, and stress test utilizes EKG tracings during exercise alone or in combination with imaging. A simple treadmill stress test is conducted to assess for any abnormalities in the EKG tracings as the patient exercises. It is used to provide information about how the heart responds to exertion, and that usually involves walking on a treadmill at increasing levels of difficulty while the EKG heart rate, and blood pressures are monitored. If the patient has a history of an abnormal EKG, a simple walking treadmill test may not be where the provider starts. They may order a stress echocardiogram or a nuclear stress test. A stress echocardiogram is a procedure that determines how well your heart muscle is working and how well the blood vessels are supplying adequate blood and oxygen to the heart muscle. Prior to the stress portion of the stress echocardiogram, where the patient is put on the treadmill, a transthoracic echocardiogram is completed to obtain resting images. An echocardiogram can be completed by itself without stress testing or in combination with stress testing and putting the patient on the treadmill. An echocardiogram uses sound waves to produce an image of your heart. This allows the provider to visualize how efficiently your heart is beating and pumping blood. I often describe an echocardiogram as giving insight to the structural portion of the heart. It allows us to visualize the heart muscle as it squeezes and relaxes, the blood flow through the heart, and we are able to assess the valves of the heart as well. We can also assess for any congenital heart defects. During a transthoracic echocardiogram, which means the images are obtained at the chest level through the thoracic cavity, a sonographer or the technician will use gel on the transducer and firmly hold the transducer to your skin, aiming an ultrasound wave to your chest and heart. The transducer records the sound wave echoes from your heart and converts the echoes into moving images on the monitor. Doppler can also be used during echocardiogram, which allows for 
the assessment of sound waves that change pitch when they bounce off blood as it moves through your heart and your blood vessels. This can help the physician measure the speed and the direction of the blood flow in your heart. The study is then reviewed and read by a physician who was appropriately trained. With a stress echocardiogram, images are obtained at rest and also immediately after exercise, which allows us to visualize how the heart muscle performs during high levels of activity. A nuclear stress test uses radioactive dye and images to create pictures of the blood flow of your heart muscle. Initially, images are taken of blood flow while you are at rest, and then the patient is put on the treadmill to exercise to a target heart rate of 85% of their maximum heart rate, which is calculated by 220 minus their age. So for a 60-year-old patient, their max heart rate would be 160 beats per minute. 220 minus 60 equals 160 beats per minute. And their target heart rate during the test, which is 85% of the max heart rate, would equate to 136 beats per minute. When the patient reaches 85% of the maximum heart rate, the isotope will be injected through an IV and the patient continues to walk on the treadmill for one minute while the isotope circulates and is absorbed by the heart muscle. A second set of images are taken to assess how much of the isotope was absorbed by the heart muscle and then compared to resting images. If there is a decrease in absorption of the isotope in an area of the heart muscle, this would indicate decreased perfusion to the area of the myocardium. If patients are unable to reach their target heart rate or limited due to physical barriers such as knee pain, back pain, or other ailments, a pharmacological nuclear stress test can be completed. A pharmacological nuclear stress test uses regadenosin in place of exercise to dilate the arteries of the heart, and shortly after the patient is injected with regadenosin, the isotope is injected as well. There is a short half-life of regadenosin, and caffeine is the antidote. A second set of pictures are obtained after the injection of regadenosin and the isotope, similarly to that after patient exercises. These before and after images are reviewed by a trained physician, as well as the EKG tracings obtained during the stress test to assess for any ischemic defects. Dobutamine nuclear stress test is a nuclear stress test that is performed in patients who are unable to walk on a treadmill and also have significant lung disease. Instead of exercise, the drug dobutamine is injected intravenously for stress portion of the test. Dobutamine has a similar effect on your heart as exercise by increasing the rate and contractility. If a patient has an abnormal nuclear stress test or persistent symptoms that can be anginal equivalent with a normal nuclear stress test, since it is possible for the stress to produce a false negative, further definitive testing may be ordered, such as a left heart cath or also known as a coronary angiogram. I will talk further about left and right heart caths in an upcoming podcast. Chest x-rays are often used for patients with symptoms of shortness of breath to assess for any underlying causes such as increased pulmonary vascularity, which is seen in acute exacerbation of heart failure, pleural effusions, pneumothorax, or infiltrates, which may indicate pneumonia. We can also look for indications of pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lungs. If a pulmonary embolism is suspected, we often order a chest x-ray and a D-dimer, which is a blood test, initially. The D-dimer, if elevated, can mean increased risk for the likelihood of pulmonary embolism. At that time, if the patient has normal renal function, a chest CT with contrast will be performed to assess for any pulmonary emboli. If the patient has renal insufficiency or renal failure, a VQ or ventilation perfusion lung scan will be ordered. This is a type of medical image that utilizes medical isotopes to evaluate circulation of air and blood within the patient's lung in order to determine the ventilation and perfusion ratio. 
The ventilation part of the test looks at the ability of the air to reach all parts of the lungs, which would be diminished in the presence of pulmonary embolism. The last screening test I'm going to talk about is a carotid artery ultrasound. A carotid ultrasound is used to assess a patient's degree of stenosis in the carotid arteries. Carotid arteries are located on each side of your neck and deliver blood from your heart to your brain. Significant carotid artery stenosis can increase a patient's risk of stroke. Narrowing of the carotid arteries can occur due to buildup of plaque made up of fat, cholesterol, calcium, or other substances that are present in the bloodstream. Carotid ultrasound might be considered if a patient has hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, family history of stroke or cardiovascular disease, a recent TIA or stroke, coronary artery disease themselves, or if a carotid brewery is heard while auscultating the arteries during physical assessment. Ongoing dizziness also can be a reason that your provider may order the diagnostic test due to the risk of decreased blood flow to the brain if blockage is present. I hope you have found this podcast helpful as I explain the use of commonly ordered diagnostic tests, which are used to identify and treat several different diagnoses within cardiovascular disease. As always, you can find me at the Instagram handle, Let's Review RN. Please drop me a message on anything you would like to be educated on during another episode of Let's Review RN. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.